Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Lack, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 14th episode of this podcast, recorded on Thursday, March 16. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. My guest today is Sonia Olds-Sohm, global managing partner in the newly created legal risk, compliance, and government affairs practice at Diversified Search Group. Combining her extensive executive search experience in the legal industry with a proven track record of understanding the importance of diverse and inclusive leadership, Sonia leads searches and advises clients in recruiting chief legal officers, general counsel, and other C-suite and board members. I try to bring on guests in a somewhat topical or timely way, and Sonia is no exception. February was Black History Month, March is Women's History Month, and concerns of diversity and inclusion are front and center right now in the legal world. Sonia is a leading expert on diversity and legal, and she has been honored by numerous organizations, including the National Bar Association, the Metropolitan Black Bar Association, the Hispanic National Bar Association, and Ms. J.D. for her work in helping to diversify the legal profession. In our conversation, Sonia offered her honest assessment of how the legal world is doing when it comes to diversity efforts. She also shared her own personal story of growing up as a poor Black girl in Detroit to becoming a law firm partner to transitioning into a leader in the world of legal and executive search a story which is full of both inspiration and insight. Without further ado, here's my interview of Sonia Sohm. Sonia, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. David, thank you so much for having me. It's a really great pleasure to be here. So I'm surprised, as you were just mentioning before we went on air, this is your first podcast? It is. And I hope that doesn't date me and make me sound old. I'm not on TikTok or any of that either. <laughs> but I'm trying to get with the times. And this is my first podcast. And I can think of no one better to start with than with you, an old friend who I trust to be gentle with me as a first timer. <laughs> well, again, I'm so honored and delighted. And I think this will be a lot of fun. So we're old friends, but for my listeners, let's start at the beginning. This will again. I'm born uh, in a long cabin. <laughs> too far back, too far back. Okay. <laughs> so tell us a bit about what your childhood and upbringing were like. Where did you grow up? And were there any hints that you would someday become a lawyer? So I was born in Pittsburgh, moved to Detroit when I think I was around three or four. Raised in the city of Detroit. A lot of people say they're from Detroit and they're actually from the suburbs. I'm actually from the city of Detroit. Was raised at Seven Mile and Southfield Freeway, if anybody is from Detroit. Holler! <laughs> Spent my whole childhood in the city of Detroit. Then my mother remarried and we moved to Southfield, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And my parents and my younger brother and sister still live in Southfield. So my upbringing, you know, it... <laughs> It was a mixed bag, I guess I will say. You know, there were hardships, there were struggles and all of those sorts of things. I don't like talking about them because I feel like they're so, they're almost cliched. And you can probably guess some cliched things, you know, about my childhood is like, yep, 
That totally happened to me. But what I really want to focus on is that the constant, the one constant in my sometimes turbulent childhood was my mother, who was always 100% in my corner, who when nobody else wanted anything to do with me, my mother always believed in me and always thought I was great and wonderful and always encouraged me and really put me on the path that I'm on today. I like to say that if there are any good things about me that, you know, you liked, that was Jessica's doing. That was Jessica raising me to try to be a better person and frankly, helped me overcome sort of the bad angel on the shoulder. The good angel on the shoulder was always my mom. So I love her and thank her so much for everything. Early indications that I might become a lawyer. Well, I will say, and I've said this before in articles and interviews, The Cosby Show. The Cosby Show was on, and I know we're not going to talk about him. We're going to talk about her, Claire Huxtable. Claire Huxtable, I had never seen anybody like her who looked like me in my life, a beautiful, dark brown skin, black woman, smart and funny and confident. She was married. She had kids. She was a lawyer. And I thought, wow, wow. And I remember saying to my mom, like, is this chick for real? And my mom <laughs> was like, well, no. You know, obviously there's a fictionalized superwoman element. It was like, really? Now she speaks Spanish? Is there nothing she can't do? That's not realistic. Although I actually do speak some Spanish. But my mom said, but you can grow up to be whatever you want and you can do whatever you want. You want to be a lawyer? You can be a lawyer. You want to get married and have kids? You can do that. You can do all of those things. And that made a, it was a big deal to me because I'm the first person in my family to finish college. Oh, wow. The first Black woman lawyer, my real life Claire Huxtable, was my constitutional law professor Winnie Taylor at Cornell Law School. And I actually just recently at a Cornell event in New York, I hadn't seen her in 30 years. I recently had a chance to see her. And I said, do you remember me? She's like, oh, honey, of course not. And I'm like, that's right. (laughs) She's like, oh, wait, were you one of the ones from the 90s? I was like, yes, I'm one of the ones from the 90s. But she was so sweet and so kind. And I hugged her and I was crying. And I often cry. I may still cry this morning. I think it's very cathartic. But I hugged her and I told her that between Claire Huxtable and then finally meeting you in person, standing in front of this huge room of students and just controlling the classroom and so confident and so knowledgeable. And people don't believe this about me. I am very shy and introverted. I don't believe it. (laughs) No one ever believed that. But I have theater training as my background. So I psych myself up for performances, I'm always very nervous. And then afterwards, I'm always so relieved that it's over. And I go in my bedroom and vow never to return again until like the call comes and it's like, well, we need you to come do this thing or that thing. But when I saw Winnie Taylor, I'm shrinking in the back of a classroom and I saw her and she's tiny. And she was just commanding the classroom, dark skin, short hair like mine. And I just thought, so it's real. Claire Huxtable's real. And I may not be able to be all of those parts of her, but the lawyer part and the confident doing what I want with my life part, I can absolutely do that. Wow, that's interesting. And I think your comments are also reflective of the importance of role models and mentors. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later in this conversation, but I really think it's just so inspiring. So when you were at Cornell Law School, did you have a sense of the type of law or the type of legal career that you wanted to have afterwards? So I did. I remember. Poor kid, 
no professionals in the family, no internet, okay? No internet. So it was just like whatever you could find in books or magazines or somebody that you might know. I mean, the information was not there. And if you're not plugged into those networks, you know, you wouldn't know. So again, it was a very different time. And then how did you progress from Cornell into your first job as a lawyer? How did you make that decision? In the late 90s, everybody was graduating from law school with a job. Like everybody had a job, right? Cornell was like, we have a close 200% placement record in terms of people having a job. Guess why it wasn't 100%? This girl. (laughs) I did not have a job when I graduated. I really bombed my on-campus interviews so terribly. But also my first summer, I ended up going to the Sorbonne which was terrific. That was a relatively new program that Cornell had. So I went to the Sorbonne my first summer. My second summer, I didn't have a job. I decided to go and stay with relatives in Atlanta. I worked at Borders Bookstore in Atlanta because I had worked my way through college and on law school breaks at Borders in Michigan. So I went and worked at Borders in Atlanta. But funny thing, when I was working at Borders in Atlanta, a man named Derek Bell came into Borders for a book signing. And I was assigned to take him around and talk to him and stuff. And at the time, he was a visiting professor at NYU Law. I'm talking to him and he was like, well, you seem to know a lot about the law. And I'm like, well, I know a little bit. I'm at Cornell Law. And he stopped and he was like, why aren't you at Cornell Law now? Or at least at somebody's law firm. Like, what happened to you? And I told him my whole sad story. And he was like, wow, that's really incredible. You do not know what you're doing. He said, but if it happens, I am working on a constitutional law book and I need somebody else to help me. God bless his soul. He probably did not need anybody else to help him. He said, I could use somebody else to help me with, you know, doing case summaries and editing and stuff. And, you know, you could help me out with that. So like during the day, I worked at Borders Books and at night I was editing case law for Derek Bell's constitutional law book. And if you have that book, I am one of the list of people, you know, who's credited on that. And it was the 90s. So he was faxing me things to Kinko's and I was faxing things back. But again, God bless him. That was as close to sort of legal experience I got, you know, during law school. Graduated, didn't have a job, moved back to Atlanta, working at Borders, working at the High Museum of Art gift shop that I got fired from because I was always late because I was always also studying for Barbary. Finally got a job because I had the good sense to get the Cornell Law School alumni office to fax me a list. What a 90 sentence. (laughs) They faxed me to Kinko's a list of all the Cornell Law alums in Atlanta, which, you know, there weren't that many. And I just started cold calling them and saying, hey, you don't know me, but we both went to Cornell Law. You know, I am obviously broke and alone and afraid. Can you please talk to me? Can we have coffee? And God bless every one of their souls for Big Red Alumni Pride. People talked to me. People took me to lunch. You know, people bought me coffee. I'm pretty sure every single one of them dried my tears and told me it was going to be okay. And one of them called me one day and said, you know, we have a temporary opening in the immigration group at Paul Hastings, my firm, you know, I'll get you an interview. Why don't you come on in? And that is how I finally launched my career. And you know how it is in the legal profession. You do one thing for two seconds, but it's not your specialty. But I fell into immigration. 
I ended up loving it. And that ended up being my career. So I moved back home to Detroit. I kind of moved from firm to firm, moved up the ranks, was an associate with a partner, was ultimately the managing partner of my immigration practice group in my last two firms. So again, a lot of serendipity in my life because again, I didn't know any better, but it has worked out pretty well so far. I agree. There was some serendipity, but I also think it's a testament to your grit and your resilience and your not taking no for an answer. And so I think there are a lot of life and career lessons to be learned from your story. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the best next step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. Speaking of resilience, tell us then about how you were a partner at a firm, but then tell us about how you then were no longer a partner at a firm. Yeah, you know, you talk about, you know, resilience and hard work and not taking no for an answer. And frankly, having a lot of great people who have helped me and taken pity upon me and believed in me along the way, starting with my mother and so many other people in between. But, you know, when you're born, again, not to be cliche, but when you're born a poor Black child, you don't expect, you know, as Langston Hughes would say, life for me ain't never been no crystal stair. So, mm. you know, I never expected, again, when you're born poor, when you're born Black, when you're born a woman, when you're born a poor Black woman, it's not like you come into this world thinking everything's going to work out. If anything, you're pretty certain things are not going to work out. And that if anything does work out, it's going to take a lot of prayer, a lot of hard work, and again, people to support you. So if anybody's going to get laid off and have to start all over again, I'm probably uniquely qualified or as much as other poor Black women are qualified to do what I have to do to kind of start all over again because I never expected everything to work out for me. And I think that has been a difference for me where it has helped me as I counsel candidates in the legal profession. I think having that experience, like I said, of having frankly started out down and had to kind of rise up and then knocked down a few times and had to rise back up. And each time you have to do that, it gets easier in a way because you're like, okay, I've been through worse or I've been through this before. And if you have not had a lot of those experiences, it can feel very shocking. I know a lot of lawyers who almost feel a sense of entitlement, like, this is supposed to happen to other kinds of people in other kinds of jobs and not me. So I was a law firm partner in 2008. But I also, after great effort in IVF and a lot of sadness, finally became a mother in 2008. I changed law firms and joined a firm. And I thought, this is going to be a great. My whole life story is so cliche. You can't even make it into a movie because nobody believes it. Because I'm always saying dumb stuff that ends up being like, wow, why did she think that? Like at <laughs> one point in my career, I left a solid law firm to join a dot com in 1999. I was like, I'm going to be rich. I got all these shares. I'm going to be a dot com millionaire. <laughs> Which again is hilarious now, but at the time seemed completely plausible to me. Anyway, until 2008, I finally become a mother, you know, a partner of my firm. I'm trying to figure everything out. I changed firms. I changed firms and I started my new firm the third week of September 2008. Now, oh. for students of history, and if you're there, the third week of September 2008 is when everything went to hell. Like literally yep. that Monday was my first day at my new firm. 
And what were the specialties of my new firm? Wait for it. Automotive and financial services. Oh. So, <laughs> so again, kids, go Google it and see what's <laughs> happening in financial services and automotive in the third week of September 2008. I thought, this is going to be great. The narrator was like, it would not be great. So <laughs> I spent six months doing my best. And then the firm had a riff. Of course they did. They had a riff. And they were very sorry about it. But they were like, I know you've only been six months and you haven't really had a chance to kind of get things going. But we're having to let people go who've been here 20 years, who have never worked anyplace else. Like the whole situation is messed up. And, you know, I can be a vengeful person, but I hope I'm not entirely unreasonable because I never blame them. Like, mm-hmm. I totally understood. I was like, yeah, this is all terrible. I totally understand. And so, you know, they gave me a nice severance. And, you know, I went home to spend some time with my baby, who I had barely spent any time with. And I had a really good chance to sleep. David, I slept better that night than I'd slept in like 10 years. Wow. There was no reason to worry anymore. The thing I had worried about so much had happened. And I finally got a chance to sleep. And then over the days and weeks, I had a lot of time to sink. And it was funny, the search firm that had placed me called me up and said, hey, you know, we're so sorry about this. You had other offers that you turned down to take this one. Some of these other firms are still interested. Like, we can get you right back in the game. And because I had had a chance to finally, again, get some baby brain fog out and get some decent sleep and to think, I said, you know what? I feel like this was a sign because I'm not sorry that I'm not practicing law anymore. Huh. I'm nervous about the future, but I'm not like, oh, please get me in another firm. And like, it, it kind of took a moment. You know, when you get thrown off the treadmill, maybe you would have never stopped on your own. But when you're thrown off of the treadmill and you have no choice in the matter and it finally happens, you have some time to think. It can be a transformative moment because why did I go into the law in the first place? Why did I go to work in law firms in the first place? Security, a poor child who wanted to feel secure. Well, when you find out that law firms are, again, no more secure than anything else in this world, that they are not a guarantee against misfortune. And I think a lot of people felt this after 2008. The covenant between lawyers and law firms was kind of broken. The deal used to be, You will come to our firm. You will work every hour God puts in a day. You will (laughs) sacrifice all. But in return, you will be safe. You are our family. You are one of us. You will not have to worry about money. You will not have to worry about security. We got you. And all we ask in exchange is your youth and your soul. (laughs) And not knowing any better, at the time, that seemed like a good deal to me. Again, when you're poor and it's like, you know what, that sounds like a good deal to me. And so when it turned out that there is no safe, it's not family, it's not forever, you're vulnerable to the economy just like anybody else, you're in a service industry. If the industries that you serve are suffering, nine times out of 10, your firm is going to be suffering to a certain extent as well. And so when that covenant was broken, it's like, oh, wait. I don't enjoy this. I'm working all the time. I've barely seen this baby that I tried so hard to have. And it's not secure. And I'm in this. Why exactly? And again, I don't claim to have had any great, you know, passion for the law or passion for the profession. And again, this was like 15 years ago. So it's like, well, there weren't as many different things in terms of legal operations and all these different things that were very popular. But the people I knew who were doing different things, you know, marketing, 
professional services and law firms, all these different things. I talked to different people. Okay, what have you done with your law degree that's not practicing law? And they were really good conversations. But my former search firm said, you know, we think you could be a good legal recruiter. You know, you've got great instinct for business development. You know, you're good with people and all of that. And, you know, they said, we have two lower level positions open, like cold caller in the in-house practice group or cold caller in the partner practice group. And they were like, so you probably want the partner practice group because you're a partner. And I was like, actually, I am not the biggest proponent of law firms right now. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be the best partner recruiter, but let me see what this in-house thing, you know, is about. So I went in as a cold caller in the in-house practice group. And the whole job was, here's a list of all the big companies in the Midwest. Call them and ask them if they need a legal recruiter. That's the job. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'll give this a try for six months until I figure out, you know, what I really want to do. And then I'll do something else. And I ended up kind of reinventing and changing my job to something that better suited the way I kind of do things. And to their credit, they let me do that. But I ended up staying there nine years and rose up from the bottom again, rose up from cold collar to partner again in that search firm and then changed firms. It was at another firm as a partner for three years. And then just last year, you know, I joined Diversified Search Group and I head up the Legal Risk Compliance and Government Affairs Search Practice Group at Diversified. So again, not a career that any sane person would have planned out, but I've been, like I said, very, very fortunate and I've had really great people believe in me and support me along the way. So turning to what you do as a search professional, What are some of the qualities that are most prized right now by the clients you're working for who are seeking talent? So speaking of the age that we're in, literally the stuff that's going on this week, but also the things that have been going on the last three years, resilience, crisis management, risk management. Again, if you have had to experience the struggle in some way in your personal life and certainly in your professional life, if you have had to help guide an organization or be a part of what an organization is trying to do to navigate rocky waters, this is your time to shine. Because one of the things that has happened in the last three years is that a lot of these things that have happened with COVID and even after the murder of George Floyd, these were uncharted waters. And there was no natural person to be the leader of how to guide the organization through this thing. There was no natural person to be the COVID leader. There was no natural person to be the racial reckoning leader, right? And so what ended up happening is this company is like, well, hmm, who we got? Well, it can't be the CFO, right? CFO can't help. You know, like who's going to be the person to lead this thing? And nine times out of 10 is the general counsel because it's like you can read, you can write, you can analyze and assess risk management, crisis management, like figuring stuff out, analytical skills, you know, interpersonal skills, like all those liberal art things that people said was useless are not. And also to be perfectly clear, if there's any diversity in the C-suite, it's the head of HR and or the GC. And so a lot of times, frankly, these companies were looking for the highest ranking Black person to say, this George Floyd thing, how do we get a handle on this? And on the one hand, that has been an opportunity for people to step forward as a leader outside of the narrow legal space and to shine 
On the other hand, it's incredibly unfair that you've got this one Black person in your company and now they have to sort of do everything. But it had been the opportunity to say, this is what I can do to be a leader beyond just be, you know, your lawyer person. And that has led to people, I think, in part people, you know, moving into, you know, CAO, COO, you know, other kinds of roles. You know, we see ESG emerging. Obviously, DEI is more of a thing now. And then, of course, outside of the company, you know, you see people having more board opportunities because they have these skills, again, crisis management, risk management, you know, DEI, bankruptcy, restructuring, you know, all of these different things are skill sets. And when people are talking about joining boards these days, because we're seeing more and more lawyers and GCs joining boards, I always have to advise them, don't lead with the fact that you're a lawyer or a GC. Nobody cares about that. Lead with the fact that you're a leader. Lead with the fact that you have helped to lead organizations through all of these different things. People tend to shy away from the bad or the messy. And when organizations are in trouble, I get a lot of calls from people saying, you know, should I leave? Like, should I jump ship? And I'm like, maybe, but don't be so quick to do that. If you can ride this out, first of all, you didn't create the problem. So nobody's going to blame you. If you can help shepherd the company through this process, however it resolves itself, you will gain such amazing, valuable experience that frankly looks really good on a resume. And frankly, I've seen people end up in higher level positions because they were the person who stuck around and helped the company work through it. And again, however it resolves itself, if you can stomach it, if you can bear through it, it can be amazing experience that is very, very valuable. I remember once putting together a panel on crisis management and how to survive a crisis And, you know, I had a GC on the panel who had been the GC of several companies that had gone through crises. And some other GC got the invitation and emailed me and said, Sonia, do you think it's a good idea to put so-and-so on this panel? I mean, look at all these crises. And I was like, yeah, look at all these crises. They survive. They ain't in jail, are they? (laughs) In fact, they're doing a really good job right now. I was like, don't you want to know why? Don't you want to know how? And he would be back in like five minutes and said, Good point. I'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) So turning to what you were just discussing in terms of DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion, which has been a very active space and an increasing priority, I think, for law firms and corporate legal departments. If you had to give the legal profession a grade on DEI efforts, what grade would you give and why? It's a great question. And I gave it some thought. I would give the legal profession a D. (laughs) Ouch. But I would give the whole rest of the world like a C minus. Okay. So so what I'm saying is that this is a real problem. This is a real ongoing issue across the board. And I only grade the legal profession lower because the legal profession is so resistant to change. Real, systematic, deep institutional change. And it makes sense because lawyers are raised to be risk averse and changes by its very nature risky. And DEI means change. So, you know, if you're thinking about a group of people who, when emails came out, were like, what? I'm not doing that. That's not a good way to transport information. And when faxes came, oh, I'm not faxing anything. I mean, there are partners who are still printing out their emails, right? So, like, when you think about an institution of the legal profession, which is, again, by its very nature, lawyers are cautious, lawyers are risk averse. 
Lawyers take comfort in doing things the way they've always been done. That is the least risky way to do things is the way they've always been done. So it's kind of a fail safe. It's frankly like, you know, talk about bet the company litigation, right? And a company will hire, say, like a scadden. Why? Because it's like, hey, even if it goes wrong, even if everything goes horribly wrong and the board asks the CEO what happened, the CEO can say, I did everything I could. I hired Skadden. So it's like, again, things will always happen in life. You can never have a guarantee, you know, as to how things will turn out. But some decisions make people feel more comfortable than others and everything else seems risky. And that is the inherent problem, the inherent conflict between DEI and the legal profession. DEI means change, real, sustained, important change. Not give everybody a black and white cookie on MLK Day, but like, how are we assigning work? How are we assigning origination credit? How are we developing people? Let's look at the metrics. Let's change the way we're doing things. No, 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 no. We just want to hand out cookies on MLK Day and have it look good. So change in law firms are never going to be a comfortable mix, which is why I don't anticipate. And all the things that we do, and we should absolutely keep doing them all, but I think we have to initially recognize that the very nature of the profession is one that is conservative in the sense of let us keep doing things the way we think they have always done and should always be done because they have worked for some people. So before we move to our lightning round of the final questions, let's stay on that change theme. And I want to ask you, Sonia, what are some concrete changes that law firms and in-house legal departments can implement if they want to improve their grade from a D when it comes to DEI efforts? And I would say one of them is hire you and diversified search group, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't recruit lawyers for law firms. I do recruit GCs, chief compliance officers, things like that for law firms and for companies. Frankly, if you really want a great DEI consultant as a company or a law firm, I'll put in a plug for my friend Paula Edgar. Oh, I love Paula. I should have her on the show too. (laughs) You should, and you should be on hers. That's my next podcast. Oh, (laughs) great. So I think, you know, whenever a law firm these days reaches out to me and says, we need to hire a DEI person, the first thing I ask them is, okay, what work have you already done? Have you had any DEI consulting? Have you had any DEI training? Like, what things have you already done? I said, because if you haven't tried to do anything on your own to expect one person to come in and just magically fix it all is really to set that person up for failure the reason for setting people up for failure. And it's one of the reasons why we have this rapid turnaround in the space where people go into these roles and they stay a year, 18 months, and then they're back out. I would say to the firm, have you done the work? Have you done the pre-work? Because if you haven't done the pre-work and you haven't really taken a close look at yourself, if you really haven't gone through that process, then frankly, any DEI person that you would want to have is not going to want to join you. And if they do join you, it really would be expecting too much of them to just sort of have magically resolve everything, you know, for your firm. So in the searches that you are doing for corporate legal departments or executives even beyond the legal space, is DEI more of a priority, at least among your clients? Let me put it this way. DEI has always been said to be a priority. First of all, the reality is that 
I'm a Black woman recruiter. I am a well-known Black woman recruiter. So the kind of clients who come to me, that's a lot of the reason that they came to me to begin with is because this is a space that I'm known to be very active in. So my perspective is kind of skewed by the fact that people always came to me from a DEI perspective because I've been Black 50 years. I didn't turn (laughs) Black three years ago, right? So that's always been the space that I've been in. So that's why people come to me. So people always say DEI is important. And naturally, DEI is important to us. And it's sort of boilerplate language. So I think you always, again, want to have that conversation deeper as to, okay, well, what does that mean? And why is it important? And how does that shape, you know, what we're going to try to be looking for in this search? And again, what have you done already? So that, again, if this is going to be your you know, first Black executive or what have you, which again, I applaud it. We all got to start somewhere on this journey. But what is this person going to be coming into? What resources and support are they going to be? What are your plans? What are you trying to do? Because again, you can't hire one person and tell them to fix everything. That's just not how this works. Ask Barack. You can't hire one person and say, now it's big forever. No, it's not. This is a process and it's a little forward and a little backward. And it's not one person who comes in and magically waves the wand and fixes everything. That's just not how this works. So I, I try to have a real conversation with clients about, you know, what their real commitment is. Candidly, most of my clients are diverse people. Most of my clients have always been women or people of color, Black people. And most of them are people I already know well. So I've been with them on the journey for a long time. So I really don't have to spend a lot of time questioning their motivation because I've known them for years and I know who they are and I know their own lived experience and what they're trying to do now that they are where they are. But the degree to which, you know, someone is really serious, and Tantan is asking this all the time, right? You know, I'm a trusted advisor to a lot of people and a lot of people call me up and say, you know, are they for real? Like, what's going on there? You know, it's not my job to lie to people and I don't lie to people. What I want to be able to say to someone is like, look, they're on a journey and they may be closer to the beginning of this journey. And you've got to ask yourself if this is the right challenge for you and for your family, depending on where you have to move to. Is this the right challenge for you at this time? Are you up for this? Are the potential benefits going to outweigh the challenges? And again, and that's challenges to the person in the workplace. That's challenges to the family. Sometimes that's challenges to the kids in school. And so the way I phrase it and have often phrased it to sort of Black GCs and people is, is this your Rosa Parks moment? Are you at a point in your life and your career that the benefits that you would get from this and the potential that you see in this outweigh the potential challenges? And I can say that, again, this is not a perfect situation. There are no perfect situations. You have to ask yourself if this particular situation is worth it to you to say, I'm going to step out on faith in good faith and roll up my sleeves and try to do the best I can to help this organization and learn and grow myself along the way. So in closing, let's shift to the lightning round. I ask four questions that are standardized for all of my guests. And so the first one is, what do you like the least about the law? I think the thing that I like the least about the law is how rigid it can be the conservative nature of we can't do that, we can't try that until everybody else has done it and all the other law firms are doing it. 
And then maybe I might consider doing it because now it seems less risky. I understand why the law is that way. I understand why lawyers are that way, but I really don't like it. Yeah, and I think it also ties into what you were saying earlier about how it does hamper DEI efforts as well. So my second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer or search professional? Well, you know, if you watch like the Marvel movies and you see the multiverse, right? There's a version of you doing different things in different realities. I think if I had followed another reality, I'd be doing theater, I'd be singing, I'd be writing, I'd be fully indulged in my creative side if I had taken that road. A third question, how much sleep do you get each night? It's funny, since I've been permanently working remotely and since I have joined my new firm, I have a very different kind of personal and professional life now. I have a little dog and all these different things. Honestly, I do tend to get like eight hours of sleep a night. Great. I always love to hear that. And I've been pleasantly surprised by the number of high-profile guests I've had on this podcast, really successful people like yourself who do get a decent amount of sleep. So my last question is, Any final words of either career or life advice for my listeners? I remember my mother would always say to me, you know, when you're down, don't get too comfortable being down because forces are already in motion to bring you back up, which is lovely. But then she would also say, and when you're up, don't be too comfortable being up either because forces are already in motion that can bring you back down. But it's important to remember that over the course of hopefully a long life and a long career, there will be lots of ups and downs. And I would say to the people who right now perhaps are being laid off and maybe experiencing one of their first downs, as someone who survived the dot-com crash, as someone who after 9-11 was an immigration lawyer and could not get a job, as someone who in 2008, 2009 got laid off, You know, I personally, now that I'm 50 years old, I've been out of law school 25 years, I've experienced a lot of ups and downs. I'm sure I'm not done. And each time it gets a little easier because you can rattle off the down times that you've had in the past. And you remember that when you're down, forces are already in motion to bring you back up. It's a long life. It's a long career. If you're fortunate, do the best work you can. Develop a good reputation for doing the best work that you can. Make good, strong relationships and networks. Those are the people who will have your back over the years as you navigate all of these things. And again, remember, you know, it's a long life. It's a long career. Shape it the way you want to shape it, not the way you think it's safe to shape it, not the way other people might think you ought to shape it. And again, try to enjoy the ride. Well, I think your life and career are excellent examples of the words, wisdom you just shared. So Thank you again for joining me, Sonia. I'm so grateful for your time and insight today and, of course, for your friendship over the years. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, David. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Sonia for joining me. What I've always admired about Sonia is her authenticity. She keeps it real. She always tells you exactly what she thinks, and we can all benefit from her insight and her honesty. One theme of my conversation with Sonia is creating your own opportunities, which brings me to our sponsor, Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. 
And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, April 5. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.